0: Hi, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think Podcast. All through the day, I me mine, I me mine, I me mine. That George Harrison song on the Beatles' last album pretty much sums it up. They recorded it in 1970, and 47 years later, egos seemed to be running just as rampant as ever. While the unchecked ego might be popular at parties, it can get us into all kinds of trouble. This is not breaking news. Over 2,000 years ago, an Indian prince sat under a tree and thought about the problem of self. His insights and solutions became what we now call Buddhism. And a century ago in Vienna, Sigmund Freud came at the same issue from a somewhat different angle, giving us psychotherapy. My guest today, Mark Epstein, MD, is a psychotherapist and author who combines both approaches to help his patients and readers live with their egos his new book, his advice not given, a guide to getting over yourself. Welcome back to Think Again, Mark. Thank you. So first of all, let's start with the fact that Buddhism is pretty complicated. <laughs> or not. But also mm. pretty simple, right? Yeah. And and so I wonder if like for the people who might not be familiar with it, if you could just sort of give us Give us a little overview of the like four noble truths and how those go into the Eightfold Path, which sure. is the structure of your book. Yeah, okay.
1: Um, Buddha, who was an actual historical figure, supposedly, although um, nothing was written down for three hundred years. so you know, you, you, have, you have to take our word for it. Um, Buddha came to the uh, realization that uh, all of life is tinged with a sense of pervasive unsatisfactoriness and that unsatisfactoriness he called dukkha and that's the first noble truth of Buddhism it's just that word it's just dukkha and dukkha translates if you take the word apart it means hard to face Okay. Dukkha, cause face. Dukkha is hard to face. There's its opposite. Sukha is means like, you know, pleasant to face. Okay. Uh, so, it, the the uh, common English translation is uh, suffering. Life is suffering, and the Buddha is known for saying life is suffering. And the pope, uh, the last pope, was like, "Oh, the Buddha is so depressing. Just you know, <laughs> just, uh, you know uh, doesn't see doesn't see God. There's no God in Buddhism." Um, so the, the the Western interpretation of Buddhism is life is suffering, but right. that's only the first noble truth. What the Buddha was really saying is, uh, the unenlightened life is uh, full of a sense of unsatisfactoriness. Right. Okay. Uh, and then uh, he went on to say why. You, you know, so he presented the Four Noble Truths. He presented like, like doctors of his time, presented like here's the illness, here's the cause, here's the medicine, here's the cure. Right. So the Second Noble Truth is the cause. He, so what's the cause of this unsatisfactoriness? Different words get put on it, but the main one is clinging. So the, the cause is clinging. What do we cling to? You know, we cling to what's pleasant, we push away what's unpleasant, or on a more psychological level, we cling to who we think we are, which is our ego, uh, but then we can never live up to who we think we are, we're always falling short, so that makes us feel bad or we believe ourselves to be an isolated individual in this world full of billions of other isolated individuals and right. so inevitably we feel insecure so that insecurity the buddha said is the cause of our unsatisfactoriness
0: we like hold to the to the ego and to the self as something realer than it is, something less yeah. flexible than it is.
1: Yeah, there's something there. There's right. something that the, that the Buddha is trying to say that relates to how we, you know, our modern-day psychology. Right. So then the third noble truth is, oh, there's a, there's a cure. So um, liberation is possible. We don't have to be clinging. Right. You know, enlightenment, nirvana, you know, is a possibility. Right. We, we, we don't have to be hemmed in, you know. So actually, the Pope is wrong and the Buddha <laughs> uh, about this. Uh, not the current Pope. I haven't heard what he says about Buddhism. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the Buddha is actually very optimistic. He's saying, you know, this is our baseline. We're all sort of hiding from this truth that, that, that's hard to face. Right. We feel it, but we don't admit it because our egos are telling us we're supposed to be happy. Um, so that we're kind of pretending. There's a sort of false self thing. Uh, but actually, we don't have to do all of that. There's another way. And then he lays out the fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Path. Right. So he lays out a kind of, this is the way, some people would say, this is the way to enlightenment. You have to bring your consciousness to bear in all these different aspects of your life. Right. Some would say this is actually, after you have a glimpse of enlightenment, the third noble truth, after you have a glimpse of, oh, maybe things aren't the way I think they are, that this is the way, this is how to put enlightenment into practice, Okay, uh, is to pay attention consciously to all these different aspects of your life to actually bring enlightenment to your daily life. Thank you for that foundational overview.
0: It's it's necessary, I think, as a starting point. because I, you know, I just think there's a lot of misunderstanding about Buddhism in the West. And I think that there is also, we're also seeing, as you talk about in your book, a lot of sort of drips and drabs of ideas from Buddhism and meditation mm-hmm. that are coming into the popular culture. Yeah, it's culture. creeping in. And I think overall, it's probably a really good thing, but there are just misunderstandings that can come up as a, as a result well, of bringing... I don't know if it's good people. or not
1: good, but it's definitely happening. <laughs>
0: okay. So we'll, we'll leave the jury's out. On that for right now. I guess what I wanted to say is that there's this sort of central thing going on in in your book. I mean, your book is wonderful and you give lots of, um, each of the chapters is based on one of the eight um, steps or aspects of the Eightfold Path, Uh, but you connect that with real world experience and your patients and kind of how that reconciles or overlaps with Freudian psychotherapy as you practice it. There's a thing where you seem to be saying at different times that, that we need both. You know, at least in, maybe it's in this modern age, maybe it's in this time and place where we live or whatever, that we need both kind of the Freudian model of the ego and how to work with it, as well as, uh, as the kind of Buddhist approach to it through meditation. And I mean, on one level, it's sort of not surprising that you say that since you're a psychotherapist. But, but I, 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 I'm curious, like what could you unfold that a little bit? Like, what, yeah. how do those balance each other? Yeah. We well, need-
1: I can tell you how I'm thinking about it yeah. now. Yeah. This, the, I've, you know, I've been trying to think about this. I've been thinking about this stuff for, it, you know, going on 30, 40 years now which is a, a, um, a realization in and of itself. Um, and we should
0: say, actually, asterisk, that you've been, you've been a practicing meditator. I was interested in, retreats Bo- yeah, and-
1: I mean, I, I got interested in Buddhism when I was 20 years old. So before I knew very much about anything, and uh, certainly before I, I uh, knew I was going to go to medical school or become a psychiatrist or even had studied much Western psychology, I studied Buddhist psychology first, and that kind of—I uh, um, loved it, and it kind of gave me permission, in a way, to go on and study the Western part. Okay. So I've always been looking at one through the prism of the other, uh, which is why I'm writing these kinds of books. But right. so the, my current way of thinking about things is there, there, there are three interlocking tasks really to becoming a, um, a decent person <laughs> um, or okay. at least a person that's not eating away at themselves um, and others and, and others <laughs> exactly um, the first the first is tr- uh, traditionally I think more under the auspices of psychotherapy than it is Buddhism although I think both uh, um, support it, if okay. seen in a certain way. And that's, um, uh, from a, a Western psychological point of view, it's having a, a decent enough ego, uh, a good enough self-esteem okay. would be another way to say that, right. thinking enough of yourself that you're not undermining yourself at every turn. Gotcha. Um, in Buddhism, there's this concept of a, a, a precious human birth, you, you know, mm. because of this idea of reincarnation and that we're all cycling through all these different realms of existence, right. you know, uh, from the animal realm all the way up to the god realm, but that the human birth is an achievement, that it's an it's the optimal one, even better in some ways than the god realms, okay. because there's still enough suffering but enough possibility of uh, uh, consciousness. That we can use the difficulties to develop ourselves. Whereas
0: in the sort of god realms, they could get like attached to all the milk and honey or whatever. The god realms go
1: on for a much longer time. (laughs) Though, you know, according to the the literature, I don't know this personally, uh, but uh, you don't have bodies like we have bodies. You just kind of have like your dream body, and uh, the um, the uh, feelings are very pleasant most of the time. Good music and. Uh, a kind of orgasmic sense of things, right. but uh, uh, you, you don't get sick when your time is up. You just, when it's over, it's just like over immediately, and you drop out of the god realm. So, so you, you can, might be sort of like in a dream, and you're just sort kind of like go lost in the, the pleasure, yeah, but yeah. not really using it for your own development. And uh, then yeah. when it's over, you're like, oh, you're a bug now, or something. You know, <laughs> this is so, the kind
0: of stuff that puts Westerners off of Buddhism.
1: <laughs> exactly. So I don't know. You've, you've, you've got me into this right away. <laughs> anyway, um, in Buddhism, there's this idea of a precious human birth. When the, when the Dalai Lama first met with, you know, Western psychologists and they were starting to teach him about this notion of low self-esteem that we all intuitively understand, right. the Dalai Lama didn't get it. He was like, you know, I don't know. What are you talking about, low self-esteem? And he went around the room like, do you have this? Do you have this? And everyone's nodding Yes. And um, from his point of view, growing up in the Tibetan Buddhist monastic environment never even occurred to him, Mm. you know, so...
0: This is like not a problem in Tibet generally? Uh, I or... think it
1: probably is a problem everywhere. Okay. But um, <laughs> but the, but maybe uh, conceptually it hasn't been identified necessarily. <laughs> the Dalai
0: Lama uh, is like, oh, I've been told that I was the highest reincarnation of my spiritual order from the time I was born. And strangely, I never feel insecure.
1: He, although, you <laughs> know, he was taken away from his mother uh, at a very young age. And uh, once if you get him talking about that, then mm-hmm. you start to feel the humanness, okay. you know. Um, but anyway, yeah. so I so I think developmentally, ego, uh, self-esteem, very important. Right. Um, when people uh, have traumatic childhoods. And in Buddhist psychology, very little attention is paid to early development. That's one of the things that Western psychotherapy has really brought to uh, everyone's attention. Mm -hmm. We all, whether we believe in Freud or don't, we all still think of ourselves as formed by our early experience, even though we can't really remember back much beyond the age of five. But, the, but, right. we, but we all sense that how our personalities were formed. And we know that when there was difficulty in the family, when there was trauma, when there was abuse, when there was uh, either absence or alcoholism or depression or whatever that we grow up with, that in some ways we internalize that and the child thinks that it's their fault. And um, right. uh, the kind of shame that comes when there's been loss or abuse or whatever, where that people are, uh, you know, sitting with that—that—that's traditionally the province of psychotherapy. Uh, I think Buddhism can be very useful, also, and we could talk about that if you want to. But anyway, so the first task I think is the is a decent enough uh, ego, good enough self-esteem. Okay. The the next one I think is. Um, being able to exert some some kind of discipline some kind of control over the workings of your own mind right and i think that's traditionally the province of meditation that's like the t- the technology of meditation the inner science of buddhism the aspect of meditation that mindfulness based stress reduction has accessed you know that that right. has been used in psychotherapy world in dialectical behavioral therapy you know where people start to use the techniques of meditation to both quiet the mind to question the incessant kind of thinking and to learn how to uh, tolerate emotional experience right Uh, that's traditionally the province of buddhism of meditation but psychotherapy uh, can be enormously helpful in that task, also.
0: And I guess, arguably, although you don't, I know this isn't your practice, like cognitive behavioral therapy oh, yeah. is dealing with that very oh, explicitly, yeah. very right? Very like, explicitly. Yeah, yeah.
1: And and I do certainly make use of that when okay. it when it seems relevant, um, or helpful to people. Uh, but and then I think there's a third need which is to confront the ego, to face the ego, or in, in some ways to out the ego, right. uh, because the ego's very uh, insidious <laughs> and transparent, and we identify uh, unconsciously with the ego uh, and don't differentiate our you know, our more intelligent selves from our more ego-driven selves. So gotcha. I think that's, that, and that's from that place that I'm trying to write this latest book. Uh, Because I was trying to write this book from a really a more mature place as a therapist who's been working in this way for X number of years. In a lot of my other books, I tend to write from the place of a beginner just discovering, you know, oh, here's meditation. It can quiet the mind. Here's psychotherapy. It can open you to those aspects of yourself that you're um, uh, uh, not so inclined to want to look at but i wanted to try to write from a here's what i'm actually what am i really trying to do with people who come to me for therapy how am i trying to integrate these two streams in one, you know in one way gotcha. and I, that i think has to do with the ego
0: so you know when you're talking about strengthening the ego um and 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 just or strengthening the the basic sense of self self-confidence, self confidence self self worth to someone not fully acquainted or well acquainted with Buddhism, these might seem like un-Buddhist concepts, like Buddhism is trying to teach you to get over the self entirely. Is that not the case? Is that is there a
1: real difference there that, that is meaningful? Well, there's a lot of confusion. <laughs> there's a lot of confusion outside of Buddhism about what Buddhism is teaching, but there's a lot of confusion even within Buddhism right. about this notion of self or no-self, you know, of emptiness or fullness. Right. Um, and I find that confusion very interesting uh, because it speaks to, oh, this is really the task. This is why Buddhism is, is, it stays compelling. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, like you were saying at the beginning, uh, very complicated and very simple both, both at the same time. Right. Um, so I have different ways of thinking about this. What, okay. what one uh, uh, has to do with the, in Tibetan Buddhism, the founder of the school of Tibetan Buddhism that the Dalai Lama is now the inheritor of, right. uh, lived in the 15th century, his okay. name was Tsongkhapa. And uh, he was schooled in the monasteries and studied Buddhist psychology and Buddhist philosophy, and did, like m- weeks and months and years of intense uh, meditation retreat. Uh, and uh, And then he actually got enlightened. He had an enlightenment experience. And in the aftermath of his enlightenment experience, he wrote a poem, a long poem describing his, his new enlightened understanding. Okay. And um, there's a tradition in Buddhism all the way into Zen Buddhism in Japan of writing these kinds of enlightenment poems. Right. Um, uh, Sankapa's what started out, his major realization was encapsulated by, oh, I thought I understood it all before, <laughs> but now I see it's exactly the opposite <laughs> of what I thought. So you know, even for him with all that education, all that practice, exactly the opposite of what he thought. So what could that mean? You know, yeah, like, yeah. what do we think we hear? We hear the doctrine of Buddhist teaching, there is no self, right? You know, and that's very compelling for us Westerners, because we're like schooled in self, we believe in self, but we know there's something wrong with that, and, right? You know, somewhere, some of us intuitively feel, Oh, something liberating just to hear there's no self. But then, because our minds uh, like certainty, you know, we hear that no self thing, and we turn that no self into something that we have to achieve. Like we have right. to get rid of the self and find the no self. You know, yeah, and we have to empty the self. you
0: you know so help helpful here i think one thing that's helpful is the notion of the middle way right this Mm -hmm. idea that the buddha is advocating kind of uh holding seemingly contradictory realities in in mind at the same time at least during some period of your your practice and it comes back to what you're talking about with the ego that there's a way to have a self and at the same time not be that attached to the self which seems seems contradictory but that but that that can be
1: well we all a obviously have a self right you know you you know who you are <laughs> sort of i know who i, I know i'm not you anyway <laughs> you know or who knows what i would think once i was enlightened it might be exactly the opposite of what i think but right. anyway right. we we all have a self and we definitely cling to it mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. like we actually think we know who we are more than we actually know who we are. Right. You know, one of my one of the great teachings I got early on uh, was, "You're not who you think you are." It, you know, just mm-hmm. that simple phrase, mm-hmm. "You're not who mm-hmm. you think you are." Oh, you know, now what does that mean? You, you know, like the way I think about myself. Oh, yeah, that's probably true. You know, so, what happens if I stop thinking that I know who I am? Then, like little like, oh, I can actually love. More than I thought I could. Oh, maybe I'm, I even can be loved more than I thought I deserved. Right. You know, the, in the yeah. not knowing who you are, right. there's a little bit of room for actually coming into contact with who you are. Right. The Buddha's meditation was just pay attention to who you are. Right. You know, take yourself seriously. Look at yourself and uh, look at yourself moment to moment as you're unfolding in the world and. One of the things in the Buddha's uh, life story that I love, the, the Buddha, before he was enlightened, thought he was bad. He was trying to get rid of himself, just the way we were talking Mm. before, like wipe out the emotions. I should not have any pleasure. Right. You you know, that was the truth. That was where he was. That was the school he was coming from. And he did everything he could, fasted for days, punished himself to try to eliminate the toxic emotional self that uh, he felt was at the root of his suffering. And then at at the height of these self-punishing practices right the only time a childhood memory comes into play in Buddhism, the Buddha actually remembered himself as a young boy sitting under a rose apple tree mm. while his father was in the distance plowing in the fields. When he was filled with a joyous, blissful feeling, you know, that one can have sitting outside and with the sun and the wind and the tree, right. uh, he remembered that feeling and he thought to himself, that's weird. Why am I remembering that feeling at this moment when I'm so close to really eliminating every, you know, bad thing about me? And then he thought, ah, maybe I've been going at this backwards. Maybe I'm going at this all wrong. Maybe I'm having this, this memory for a reason. Maybe the route to enlightenment is actually through this memory, through these feelings. Maybe I have to make room for my feeling self, for my joyous childhood self. And at that moment, of course, according to the story, a young maiden appears with a bowl of rice porridge and feeds the Buddha. And he eats and gains strength and walks for three days until he comes to the Bodhi tree and sits down and then he gets enlightened. And his middle path that you were talking about is, is said to be the path between ascetic, punishment, you know, right. and materialistic indulgence.
0: Which can alternately also be explained as the, the, the sort of path between nihilism, like the total destruction yes. of the belief that nothing exists, yes. you know, uh, and materialism. Exactly. Hand, yeah. Taking everything things, too seriously. Right, right, yeah.
1: Right. And the the other thing that's helped me is the, the Buddhist notion of emptiness. Right. You know, which again, another confusing, you know, empty, I'm empty. (laughs) Um, Emptiness, the uh, Sanskrit word is shunyata. Okay.
0: Um,
1: Shunyata derives from the root, from the root meaning of a pregnant womb. So emptiness is like the emptiness of a pregnant womb. There's a fullness to emptiness. There's a life energy to emptiness. Uh, that so when sankapa when he realized that everything is the opposite of what he thought what he was realizing was that he was not the isolated individual struggling to get free right. that actually he was already totally connected to the world hmm. so his realization of that being the opposite is that he was a relational being already, like in the pregnant womb, already within the pregnant womb of emptiness of this entire world. He was already part and parcel of that.
0: One thing that I sort of struggle with, because I, I do find meditation and I do find the, the the basic kind of premises of Buddhism very, very compelling and try to put them into practice through, through meditation, um, is how you how you reconcile that the, the the kind of goal of Buddhist meditation with ambition of any kind in the world, that is to say, like ambition for something other than becoming enlightened or getting free or whatever like ambition to make great podcasts or, you know, Mm -hmm. those things, you know, within the context, I mean, I know like these are, it's probably a false duality that I'm setting up somehow, but it feels to me as if wanting to do something is at odds, like wanting to achieve something in the world is at odds with non-attachment.
1: There's a story that I tell at the beginning of the book about a, um, a, a monk who's in a self retreat in Nepal for years and years, and he's really practicing meditation. Right. And then he hears that the Dalai Lama is coming to town, and he arranges for an interview. And and uh, he has a conversation with the Dalai Lama where he's at, he asks the Dalai Lama for advice. What can he do to further his his realization? And the Dalai Lama says to him, "Get a life." <laughs> um, and the and that monk did he left his retreat and he realized that he had to be in the world in some way and figured out you know his sister had actually been taken in the sex trade and he went into a a whole line of work that had to do with uh, so that that's a that's not ambition in the way that you're asking about. well but actually that
0: teaches me something because as i think about that you know, yeah, his, his activity in the world is an, is a selfless act. It's an other directed activity. And I do think that, I do think that ambition in the way that I'm talking about it, that it's always possible to do that kind of perspective shift where, where you're looking at what value you're putting into the world with the thing that you're trying to do. As exactly. Opposed to I don't it think it has to be you. totally selfless. Yeah. I
1: think, I think to, to imagine that W- that we're not thinking about our own achievements, you, you know, is right. to be false. I think it's to um, uh, to only be thinking about your own achievements is to be stuck in a, a never-ending cycle. You know, the the the, right. the Buddha gave a great teaching about the eight worldly winds the winds that blow us, that that make the world go round and that blow us endlessly through. And if I can remember them, they're <laughs> gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disgrace, and praise and blame. Right. So it, it's like when we're only seeking gain and praise and affirmation— then we're we're going to be disappointed because the because we can only get we can only get so high and then we get impeached or whatever. Right, 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 um, right. Uh, but when when we're balancing that, when we understand that, of course, the self is going to be operating and is going to be wanting what it wants. But um, there, when we take the the overvaluing of that away, when we take the clinging to that away, right. when we relativize that or contextualize that enough so that we realize, oh, that's just going to be endless. You know, right. it's meaningful if you're a creative person. You know, if you're an actor, you want a good review. You know, if you write a book, you want a good review. If you make a piece of art, you know, you want it to be well-received. N- nothing wrong with that, right. but you, you don't always get your way. You're, everything you do is not great, and if that's the
0: basis of your self worth, like you are in for a, you're in for a downfall. It's not particularly sustainable.
1: Well, that is the basis of most people's self worth, uh, but even self worth doesn't have to be the ultimate uh, validation of who we are. I mean, uh-huh. I'm saying the same thing you are saying yeah, right? yeah, a in a slightly yeah, different way. Yeah, when, if you can know yourself in whatever this deeper way is that uh, Buddhism or therapy or whatever is promulgating, that there, you know, that there is a deeper way, that ultimately all of this stuff that we're spending our lives pursuing is only going to take us so far. Yeah. You could have the box with all your achievements in it, and then when you die, your children have to throw the box away. You know, um, it's
0: about yeah.
1: I mean, it's this. It's this. You know,
0: I always come back to this thing like Keats used to talk about um, negative capability, mm-hmm. which is essentially the ability to kind of hold two things in mind at the same time. You know, and 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 here you're allowing for play in the system by both allowing things to be what they are and also having perspective on them.
1: Yes, and that, and that comes back to your question about ambition. Yeah. You, you, you know, I've seen people who, drawn to meditation, drawn to Buddhism, who then feel that they have to suppress their ambition right. to be a Buddhist, to be a spiritual person, mm-hmm. but then they're not being true to themselves, you know, because they're laying a false thing on themselves. So a truer a truer way through is to try to apply that middle path thing. Right. You know, yes, ambition, but tempered yeah. by understanding. Yeah. One of the reasons that some of the great psychoanalysts were great psychoanalysts is that they they could see an entire scope of a person's life right. you, you know, and they could differentiate neurotic suffering from ordinary suffering. Okay. You, you know, so that they could see someone driven so much by ambition that they could never take in any of their achievements. They're just torturing themselves with the one negative review instead right, of, right. You know, instead of uh, owning uh, what, what they had created. Uh, And that's the neurotic suffering, the ordinary suffering, which the Buddha says, look at the ordinary suffering because you can get enlightened by looking at the ordinary suffering. The ordinary suffering is, oh, it's never enough. You you know, it really is never enough. You know, there's always going to be a residual feeling of, oh, really, it's over. And that's because it is over. I think the fear
0: for the ambitious person in that is that if you let go of the neurotic suffering, then you lose the ambition.
1: That's right. That's the fear. Yeah, that's the fear. And all that is, is a fear. <laughs> you know? And that, that's the ego's fear, yeah. you know? So if you let go of that fear, you're also letting go of a little bit of the ego. And, and lo and behold, you're still there. <laughs> right. You know, right. you didn't need that bit of your ego. In fact, you're there in a less neurotic way.
0: I think this is a good place to, to transition to the second part. So now the video team has chosen a couple of surprise interview clips from our past archives, which mm. are meant to be kind of conversation starters. You and I will watch each one and then discuss. We'll cool. just go where we go. All right, so this is a fellow psychiatrist. He's labeled here as a nutritional psychiatrist. Uh, Drew Ramsey, how to conquer depression through diet. So let's, let's see what...
1: I want to know. For
2: about 10 years, we've had very strong correlational data showing that, for example, when you eat poorly, your risk of depression and illnesses like depression just go up 70-80%. And When you eat a more traditional diet, like a Mediterranean diet or a Japanese diet, your risk of an illness like depression can go down by as much as 50%. So that's now led to the first clinical trial uh, that, that is just being reported, showing that a Mediterranean diet s- augmented with some red meat actually can treat clinical depression, major depression disorder. And it's a very exciting moment for nutritional psychiatry. It's, uh, uh, it's a time when we have more science that tells us food should really be part of the conversation when it comes to our mental health. We are facing an incredible mental health epidemic. I've, I've been in New York as a psychiatrist now for 16 years. And, um, the of distress, um, and the amount of distress and the amount of mortality that we're seeing is just like levels we've never seen before. And it's uh, we need as many tools in our toolbox. And food is, is, is very much there, both from just common sense. Right? We all know that to feel right, we need to eat right. But then also backed up by now an incredible amount of science showing that a core set of nutrients actually have have very clear data they can help in the prevention and the treatment of illnesses, again, like depression and dementia. So we wanna encourage people to eat those foods that that have the most of these nutrients and then help them do that is really part of a a mental health care plan. Um, we, We think about a lot of illnesses when we eat, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and it's always struck me that really the illness you should be worried about or the organ you should be worried about when you're eating is your brain because that is by far your biggest asset. It consumes more of your energy and your food than any other organ you have. And so focusing on the nutrients your brain needs guides you to a slightly different set of foods than if you focus on just things like calories or saturated fat or preventing um, something like cancer. And so it's. an exciting moment as the data begins to catch up with with common sense. The diets that seem to do the best in terms of brain health are traditional diets. So for example, the most science is about the Mediterranean diet. Mediterranean diet is a plant-based diet. You're gonna see lots and lots of of nuts and seeds, whole grains, you're gonna see seafood. You're gonna see meat and dairy treated differently. I mean, it's interesting that all Mediterranean diets you know, Greek yogurt, for example, right? They they, they have some uh, dairy and fermented dairy products and meat, but they're used more as as flavorings. You don't see what we see in a Western diet of you know a giant steak and a, and a, a baked potato. Yeah, you see a lot more spices in the Mediterranean diet, and, and and fresh herbs. These are very very powerful medicines that have always been used in, uh, to, to to treat human illness. And so if one of my Favorite interventions is um, helping people do like even a little herb pot on their on their fire escape or or you know in their front yard because you can just walk out in the morning, grab some chives, grab some basil, chop it up, have it with your scrambled eggs. You've just increased the nutrient density of that meal and you've made it a little bit more like the Mediterranean diet. So. What you're going to see is, in the Mediterranean diet, it's mainly monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats. Um, you're going to see, again, a lot of crunchy vegetables, a lot of rainbows on those plates, and lots and lots of seafood. I mean, that's really one of the main differences. If you look at a Spanish diet, right, all those tapas with little anchovies and a little bit of squid and a little bit of octopus, right, where we're getting these very, very nutrient-dense seafoods that, again, we know have these molecules that are so important for brain health.
0: So I'm actually increasingly convinced by a lot of the science that I've read that octopus are kind of enlightened beings I'm and I'm, I mean,
1: I'm, <laughs> I don't think they're enlightened but they're definitely conscious I guess that's
0: what I mean they're yeah, definitely conscious. They're conscious and super smart and I'm very skeptical about eating them at this yeah. point
1: but But you, aside from that, aside
0: from all that, um, initially you had what I could only describe as a skeptical face while you were listening to that.
1: Well, it it reminds me of how people um, think about meditation. Actually, that when a when a new, uh, obviously helpful uh, um, approach enters the public consciousness, right, we want it to take care of everything. Right, y- you know, so if we meditate, you know, people are always asking me like, how long should I meditate for to get the uh, effect? The, the <laughs> yes, the proper effect. You know, twenty minutes twice a day, or an hour once a day, or um, it's not about the time. You, you know. Although I would ask you, I'm sorry, I'm going to interject. Yeah.
0: Like in your in your own practice though have you because i i went from starting with kind of meditation apps a while back doing 10 minutes doing 15 and now uh, if it's anything less than sort of 45 minutes i'm i'm finding that actually important like the a longer time is actually valuable in terms of really okay. being able to investigate and.
1: Uh, will it cure your dementia and depression? Is yes, the question. yes, it will. Um, it already <laughs> we has. To. It if al- you do 45 minutes, <laughs>
0: it has already cured my. Dementia.
1: I would say whatever is working for you, right, 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 fine. Right, right. Um, but uh, beware of uh, prescriptions of prescribing for yourself. Uh, you know of thinking uh-huh. you know because uh-huh. it'll change. Uh-huh is what I would say got it um coming back to yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, to yeah. the video, it reminds me you know the like I'm all for the Mediterranean diet, I think that is the right way to eat It right. certainly we I was just uh, in on the Mediterranean coast of Italy, and the, it was fantastic <laughs> it, you know the food is fantastic delicious, it's, healthy yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah um but you know we want it's like uh, when when Prozac uh, came onto the market you know and helped some people in a way that nothing else had helped them and then uh, everyone wanted Prozac because they thought it would it would cure the thing that was wrong with them is it not your experience like
0: in in you know your own meditation and the time that you've spent in these yeah. communities that like say someone didn't have access to psychotherapy but they are meditating in a way over years and years that is like helpful to them and that isn't too locked up with ambition to achieve enlightenment or whatever you know purposes might be unhelpful is is it not your experience that 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 can actually significantly improve somebody's life over time
1: um it is not my experience no. that that necessarily will improve anybody's okay. life there are so many people who've been meditating for 20 30 40 mm. years um, who are just as unhappy, just as neurotic, just as depressed, gotcha. uh, and who end up getting dementia um, if, they're, if they're genetically programmed for it. You oh, know. Sure. So, no, I think that's one, of, that's one of the things that I see as a danger though in the way that uh, mindfulness, for instance, has swept through the uh, psychotherapy world, right. that young therapists in training you, you know, what they're drawn to, what they want to learn about is mindfulness instead of psychoanalytic psychotherapy. And and they're hoping and expecting that that's all they need to learn about. Gotcha. That if they can teach someone mindfulness, uh, that that's the, the essential tool for their well-being. And I think it's one wonderful tool. But there's so much that uh, contemporary psychotherapy has to offer that we're in danger of, uh, you, you know, of, of neglecting gotcha. because of an enthusiasm for this new thing. So I, I really warn against that because mm-hmm. I because I think that that you know psychoanalysis had that problem in the '50s where it was declaring itself to be the cure for everything. Well, I, I
0: think the problem is, you know, uh, one problem is that in our modern busy lives um you know everyone is constantly constantly doing triage on like what can what do i have time to do i have x number hour x number of hours in a day should i exercise 20 minutes more right you know what or is or sleep
1: you know yeah which, yeah i mean
0: which yeah. like with actual noble worthy goals like yeah. i want to live a better life so how what should i do but more but that's of, why when, I when you were talk
1: month? when you were talking before about you know, I practice meditation so that I can, uh, you, you know, make myself learn, uh, make myself a better person. Which isn't what you said, but um, what I was thinking, and what and what was motivating me in writing this book is that the point of of meditation is to learn something that then you can apply to your life. Yes. So the the practice isn't just in meditation. You, you know, or the application isn't just in meditation, right. the application is in life. So, all everything you're doing in life becomes an avenue for paying attention to your own clinging, to your own right. ego, to right. your own, you, you, you know, which
0: brings us back to the Eightfold Path as expressed as, in your book, As right, one way right of action, describing right that. livelihood, like yeah. trying to. Trying to bring those things into your day. Every yeah, well that the
1: Eightfold Path is like the ancient way of trying to describe that, or of saying to the monks, you right. know, it's not just about meditation, it's about how you comport yourself. It's about the ethics that you bring to your life. Right. Um, and saying to the supporters of the monks, to the householders, here's a way that you can begin to have an ethical life that's influenced by meditation. Right. I'm I'm trying to use that to say Okay, it's not just for the monks. We don't really have monks. It's uh, it's not just for the. We have some monks, but not that many, Um, and they're not really paying attention to all of that anyway. Um, But that it's a rubric, it's a sort of ancient rubric for talking about how it's life that matters. It's your, you know, it's your whole being that matters, and and the point is not meditation. Right. You know, meditation is just like going to school the point is like what are you doing with your education right right so but ideally
0: hopefully then meditation is is training your mind to see itself more clearly yeah, if you see you your like actions med- more clearly if
1: you like med- meditation is not for everyone okay. there are many people who you know could never sit still for 45 minutes and watch right. their minds it's just not they need to be moving they need to be in their bodies they need to be working or making something yoga or, maybe
0: for them maybe <laughs> yoga for them maybe um, or gardening or whatever Or yeah,
1: there's yeah. you know uh, one of my teachers tells mm-hmm. a, a story of he uh, giving a big Dharma talk, uh, and a woman was sitting in the front row, an older woman sitting in the row, nodding and nodding, and he could see she really understood everything that uh, he was saying, and he, he thought she must be some very advanced practitioner. And uh, he talked to her afterwards and, and said, you know, like, how do you know? I know you know. Like, how do you know? And she said, oh, I, I do needlepoint. <laughs> you know, and it's like everything was from that. Got it. So Yeah, yeah. Who knows where? Who knows where you get it from? You know.
0: So, let's let's go to the second uh, surprise. Okay. All right. So for the second one, we're going to go to Manush Samarodi, um, and the title of this video is "Be Bored: How to Tap into Your Most Brilliant Thinking." Mm-hmm. So let's see.
3: So what I wanted to understand, first of all, was what actually happens in our brains when we get bored. And it's fascinating. I had no idea that we are at this moment in history where we are starting to understand what happens in the brain when we allow it to just sort of wander where it wants where it wants to go. Um, And so what they know now is that when you get bored, you activate a network in your brain called the default mode. And you you can't this is different than mindfulness, right? This is when you're folding laundry, or like ambling down the street, or just lying on the couch not watching Game of Thrones and tweeting at the same time. So what happens in the default mode is this network um, ignites your most original thinking. It is where you do your best problem solving. Um, and You also do something called autobiographical planning, which I had never heard of. This is where you look back at your life, you take note of the highs and the lows and you build a personal narrative. You figure out what is your story, and then where are you gonna go from there? Where does the story continue? You set goals, and then you figure out the steps that you need to take to reach those goals. Now, of course, you can't ignite the default mode if you are focusing on something like your phone, or if you can't tap the brain power if you're tapping a screen. Now, this is extremely important things. Understanding who you are, theory of mind, what you want to be when you grow up, because it feels like we all want to know what we're going to be when we grow up. This is really, it's long-term planning. And so the fear is that if people are constantly thinking about what's the next post that they're going to be, or being reactive, or um, spending time uh, expressing outrage to the latest headlines, you can't do the deeper, maybe also difficult, Thinking about who you are and what you want to become, maybe changes that you need to make. And I think, you know, what was most striking to me was some of the younger people, teenagers in particular, who reached out to me and said, I'm really scared to do Born and Brilliant because I'm scared to spend time alone with my thoughts.
0: One, One thought I have, though, is that, like, left alone with my thoughts it's pretty much going to be like without the benefit of self-analysis, maybe psychoanalysis, maybe meditation, where my thoughts are going is like, oh, I really screwed that thing up last week. Oh, I should have blah, 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 you know, it's yeah. Like I'm not solving, you know, uh, I'm not coming up with the equation for relativity or, or whatever. So, so it, it seems to me like, mind-wandering without that other stuff leads a lot of people just into negative spirals, Mm -hmm. I would think.
1: Well, it's reminding me of um, one of my books was called Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart. Right. And it was, uh, again, a kind of exploration of both of Buddhism but also of the Contributions of a British child psychoanalyst named uh, Donald Winnicott. Right. Who and, and Winnicott wrote a lot about the importance of play and of unstructured, he, he called it un, un, unintegrated time, uh, which I think is sort of what, sure. uh, what she's talking yeah. about. In, and he talked about, you know, what happens when you go to the symphony, you, you know, uh, uh, what happens when you go to church even, Uh, what happens when you're at a sports event, what happens when you're in a museum, what happens when you take a walk, and how whatever that is that happens for an adult is rooted in in a childhood time that's all about play, when there's a good enough parental environment. He his classic thing is the, the mother in the next room getting dinner together and the child knows the mother is there. So right. that so feels safe, but it's also safe enough to get lost in one's own imagination. And that there's a, that that positive sense of self that we were talking about before right. is rooted in those kinds of experiences, according to Winnicott. A safe environment within which to experiment. The within, freedom, to, within, right. within which to explore. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that, and I think meditation it creates that environment at, a, at its best. And I think she's talking about another entry point when you're lying on the couch or, or whatever, um, w- that... She's saying that's different from mindfulness. I don't think it is different from mindfulness. I don't either, Uh, yeah. Yeah. I I think one can lie on the couch mindlessly and not really follow where the mind is going. Uh, So mindfulness is sort of saying, follow where the mind is going and it'll be a little more interesting.
0: I I think it's maybe pointing at that misunderstanding of mindfulness that sees it as somehow paying a uh, very grasping, very rigid attention to every single thing that's happening all yeah. the time,
1: or or not allowing things to unfold. <laughs> right. You know what mindfulness really is about: getting behind the moment, so that you know you're like on a train that's going that's going forward, and it's all coming at you. You know, right? Um, like friendly curiosity. I sometimes think. Of yeah. That, you know? Yeah. I'm. I'm not sure that all that big thinking about who I am and uh, where I'm going in the world necessarily will come uh, just by creating that kind of space. Right. But I do think it can come if one does create that kind of space. Um, so, and I think we, we we feel that happening in both in therapy. Therapy is all about creating that unstructured time for people that they don't have ordinarily. Right. And and I thought what she was saying about a generation of people growing up uh, afraid to be alone with their own thoughts. I thought that was poignant. Uh, I'm not sure that's unique to this generation. I think we're probably every generation is a little bit afraid to be alone with their own thoughts. Yeah, I mean, even it, going to drinking as opposed to a cell phone or whatever yeah, it might be. Yeah, yeah, turning on the t- I mean, people were all worried about television in the 50s, you know. Um, but But I think there's a point to be made there that's valid. I think the thing that I was
0: trying to get at before is that if there is that narrative self-structuring that goes on in downtime where yeah. you sort of think back to where you've been and where you're going yeah. and la blah, 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 and try to integrate like who am I what am yeah. I what am I about if that is all informed by as you would have it in some of your earlier work like trauma or you know sort of mistaken information of yeah. some kind then you're constantly forming a self that is not beneficial to you yeah you
1: know? Yeah, I th- that's one aspect of things. Uh, you know, I I know from being on these uh, silent meditation retreats where I'll go for a week or two weeks and just you know trying to pay attention all the time, all day long. So it really builds. Uh, there's often very deep uh, recollections of early important relationships, early love relationships, right. early you know memories that come out of the blue that inform you know oh yeah that's really that was really important for who i am right. even dreams that uh, become much more uh, vivid because you're cultivating something in the meditation that makes the dreams the messages in the dreams come very much alive gotcha. and i and i think maybe she's talking about some of that like how important that is for a a sense of continuity I might think of it as continuity of the soul Mm -hmm. more than the self, you know, like who when you strip away the ego, you're left with really your your soul that is moving you through your life. You know, that's making the the love relationships that actually do define you. Um, you. And I think that that kind of reflection really matters because it gives you a deeper sense of of who you might be.
0: And maybe also the sort of mindfulness and attention that might be happening ideally in meditation enables you to discern those kind of true messages about the development of the soul and where you're coming from and where you're going from false ones. Yes, I believe that. Mark Epstein, I very much enjoyed having you on the show again. Thanks so much for coming back. Great to be here. And that's the very first episode of 2018. I thought that this was a good one to start the year with because um, this is a time of year when we tend to look back and we tend to look forward and we do a lot of thinking about, you know, uh, what did we do well? What did we do poorly? How can we improve our lives in the coming year? And I think there is a tendency sometimes to jump to hasty conclusions or look for quick fixes that don't necessarily go where we want them to or last as well as we'd like them to so here was an opportunity to contemplate some approaches to these issues and problems of self and goals and how to live your life that might be a little more reliable than than the ones that our culture uh, at least here in america tends to push us toward And if you want to continue the conversation with us, come over to Facebook. We have a group over there called uh, Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. It's a private group, and you're welcome to request to join, and I'll let you in. And that's it. We'll be back next week with something completely different. Hope to see you then.